We're looking this morning at the normative principle of worship. And I want to begin with definition. And again, I'm drawing from Theopedia, which is an internet site dealing with these subjects. The normative principle of worship, they write, teaches that whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship. So long as it is agreeable to the peace and unity of the church. In other words, there must be agreement with the general practice of the church and no prohibition in Scripture for whatever is done in worship. Now I'm sure that you can see that this is a pretty serious shift in emphasis concerning worship from the regulative principle that we have been studying. Again, the regulative principle is this. The worship of God should include those and only those elements that are instituted, commanded, or appointed by command or example in the Bible. Whereas the normative principle asserts that if something is not prohibited in Scripture, it's permissible so long as it agrees with church consensus. See the difference? The regulative principle, although it's one devised by men, it is based upon the sola scriptura, which is one of the leading principles of the Reformation. The scripture alone, sola alone, scriptura, the scriptures alone which is one of the leading principles of the Reformation. Let me read it to you from our uh, Confession of Faith, 1689. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, all these words are important, certain, it's okay, the only, the sufficient, only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of saving knowledge, yeah, faith, what I believe, and then this third word, and obedience, what I do, what I do. That's Article 1 of the Confession, Paragraph 1, and in Paragraph 6, we read this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, to which nothing is to be added at any time, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by the traditions of men. 1689 Confession, Article 1. Now here's my question. Why would the Reformers lean so heavily upon the principle of sola scriptura, the scriptures alone as our only rule of Christian conduct. Why would they do that? Well, it is because in searching the scriptures, Luther, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Calvin, and others discovered that the Church of Rome had elevated both the church and tradition above the scriptures, and in so doing, they invented and ordained as doctrine things never found 
in the Bible. And Rome has a lot of these, even to this day. The sinless conception of Mary, that she was born without a sin nature. You're not going to find that in the book. The worship of Mary, you're not going to find that in the book. Purgatory, some kind of an intermediate state between here and hell. You're not going to find that in the book. Indulgences, what are those? Those are tickets that you can buy, paying a certain money to the church, to get you out of hell. The crucifixion of Jesus in the Mass every week. Ongoing re-sacrificing. So the Reformers asked the question, wait a minute, does the church define the scriptures or do the scriptures define the church? Rome said, hey, it's the church that defines the scriptures. That's why we have in Roman Catholic Bibles books that are called the Apocrypha and that's why we have all these what we would call additional teachings that aren't found in the book. They'll say, well, we know it's not in the book, but it's in church tradition. It's part of our modus operandi. Now you will recall, and this is our scripture for today, that Jesus locked horns with the Pharisees of his day over this very issue, Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Now this is um, nothing to do with hygiene. They didn't know about germs and all that good stuff. This is ceremonial washings, okay? So this is what they're accusing Jesus and his disciples. Some of your disciples eating food with hands that haven't been ceremonially cleansed. And it goes on. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to, where'd they come up with this? The traditions of the elders. What elders? The elders of the, of the Jewish faith. So they do these little dippings, you know, and shake off the water or whatever, and that was supposed to purify uh, their hands. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, kettles. Again, not hygiene, not, not you doing your dishes. <laughs> you know, it's not that. But it's the ceremonial thing. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, now listen to his reply. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Mark 7, the first nine verses. Now you see, 
that problem. The idea is our traditions are just as important, maybe more important, than anything you're going to find in the book. And so this is what was going on. Now that leads us, if you're looking at the bulletin outline, to a problem that is in the normative principle. The bottom line is what is approved, what is practiced in the worship of God becomes a matter in the normative principle of personal preference or taste, so long as no prohibition can be found in the scriptures. Now think of this. Although the Bible has a list of do's and don'ts in Scripture when it comes to worshiping God, more, much, much more is left unsaid. Think about that. So, if the unsaid becomes the basis for worship and what can be done, it opens the door to the imaginations and the inventions of men. It's like saying, well, anything goes, or this way, so long as it does not violate a clear prohibition in Scripture, we should be allowed to do it. That's the emphasis of the normative principle. Charismatic sensationalism, contemporary worship, seeker-sensitive programs, appeals to felt needs, dance, drama, rock bands, have all ridden to popularity on the mantra, well, God doesn't prohibit this practice. There are professing, they say, conservative churches in America which have bars built into their buildings, movie theaters in their buildings, coffee houses in their buildings. Every bit is guilty of Jesus' condemnation of the people of his day, whom he accused. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Matthew 21, verse 12 and 13. A lot of that's going on in our own day. And I don't think it's fundamentally different what the writer of the book of Judges observed, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. Judges 21, verse 25. What they did in the political realm, they also did in the spiritual realm. The idols were in their homes. They were intermarrying with the pagans, which was also forbidden by the word of God. But they did it anyway. They did more. God had warned. Here's his warning. Break down their altars, speaking of the idolaters. Smash their sacred stones. Burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods. Wipe out their names from those places. This is what they were to do when they went into the land. Now notice the next phrase. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. What way? The way idols, idolaters worship their idols. You don't worship me the way they do their idols. I read on. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, your special gifts, what you have vowed to give as your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. 
there in the presence of the Lord your God. You and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not, listen to this, you're not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit. Deuteronomy 12, verses 3 through 8. There's a regulation concerning worship. We don't take our cues of, for worship from the pagan culture. We do not, as some churches have done, go out into the pagan culture and say, what would you like to have in a church? Oh, well, I'd like this and this and this. Okay. And then the church leaders go back and they accommodate this and this and this and throw a 10-minute or a 15-minute homily in and believe that they're doing great honor to God. Human nature being what it is, the normative principle, do whatever is not prohibited, opens up a whole can of worms in worship. The checks and balances of the scripture are not only found in the specific commands of the Bible, but in the principles that we learned two weeks ago. Moses said then to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. And in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. Leviticus 10, verse 3. The principle that God is holy, that's how we approach him. And he is to be honored, that's how we approach him. And Aaron, this was after the execution of Aaron's two wicked sons for their conduct. The sad commentary on today's churchgoers and leaders alike is that they cannot discern what is holy. They have the audacity to believe that everything they do demonstrates honor and respect for God simply because in their mind what God has not forbidden particularly must be acceptable, must be approved by God. It is as we studied last week with David's appeal to the people in transporting the ark on a cart. We read the whole assembly agreed to do this. Because it seemed right to all the people. First Chronicles 13 verse 4. David says, what do you guys think? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. So they did it. And Uzzah paid the price. In this case, however, what seemed right had a specific command of God prohibiting it. The ark was to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites, not in a cart, new or otherwise, drawn by oxen. The practice of the pagan Philistines who didn't know any better. And they got away with it because they didn't know any better. This is what happens when the seems right overrides. This is what the Lord commands. And then like David, we are aghast when God judges us as he did with Uzzah. The normative principle is it's too broad. It doesn't give due caution to Solomon's wisdom. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Even in laughter the heart may ache, the joy may end in grief. The faithless will be fully repaid for their ways, and the good man rewarded for his. A simple man believes anything. 
but a prudent man gives thoughts to gives thought to his steps a wise man fears the lord and shuns evil but a fool is hot-headed and reckless proverbs 14 verse 12 through 16 anything goes the solemn says no anything doesn't go a prudent man gives thoughts to his steps where he's going to go and a wise man fears the Lord and shuns evil. It's interesting to observe that those churches which follow the regulative principle that Scripture must command or approve or model the things that are done in worship are the grace churches whose appreciation for the authority of the Scriptures undergirds all that is done in worship. Whereas those churches which oscillate towards the normative principle, the anything goes if it's not prohibited, are churches where God's word in preaching and practice take a backseat to entertainment styles that appeal to the whims of the people. That's fact. That's what's going on in our culture. Well, that brings us to the second point in the outline, the new covenant God, the new covenant God, is identical to the old covenant God. And under that, notice that God is one, not two. Perhaps, perhaps, as we have studied the sin of Nadab and Abihu, both priests, both sons of Aaron, who were struck dead by God for offering unauthorized fire in their worship, or again, the sin of David in transporting the ark of God on a cart that Uzzah reached out to stabilize when the oxen stumbled, and he also struck dead. Perhaps, I say, the notion will kind of creep into our minds. Well, you know, that, that was the God of the Old Testament. But, but we Christians live in the age of grace, not law. And that being so, God does not deal with sins of worship in the same severe way in which he dealt with these people in the past. Is that what we think? I remember reading in a biography of Charles Dickens, one of my favorite authors, whose wonderful stories include A Christmas Carol and Oliver Twist and David Copperfield. I remember reading in the bi biography that Mr. Dickens did not like the God of the Old Testament. Let me read a little bit from the biography. Dickens wrote The Life of Our Lords. It's a children's version of the new testament dickens wrote the life of our lord so that his children and he had 10 children by the way would become familiar with jesus christ and he often read the story to them when his children left home he gave each of them a new testament though not an entire bible that is no old testament to one of his children he wrote I put a New Testament among your books for the very same reasons and with the very same hopes that made me write an essay account of it for you when you were little children. He's talking about this, this uh, work that he did, the life of our Lord. He goes on. The life of our Lord most clearly expresses Dickens' religious disposition. He respected Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ, who practiced what Dickens so desperately wanted to find in humanity. 
Jesus loved all people. He rubbed shoulders with social castaways, rebuked the wealthy elitists, and severely condemned hypocrisy. If ever a man could gain Dickens' utmost respect and favor, Christ could, and he did, end quote. And I'd say the biographer has it backwards. It isn't whether Christ could obtain Dickens' favor and approval. It's whether Dickens could obtain Christ's favor and approval. But it does at least give us a, a little bit of insight into Dickens' thought. The idea that I don't want to have anything to do with the God of the Old Testament, and I'm going to write a, a paraphrase story for my children, but it's all going to be about the New Testament and about Jesus Christ. So he would not promote the God of the Old Testament because he believed that that depiction of God was harsh, censorious, judgmental, maybe even cruel at times for some of the things we find in the Old Testament. And there were a number of people in his day that made such distinctions between Jehovah of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ of the New Testament, not realizing the significance of Jesus' own self-disclosure in John 8, verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Well, I am is the translation of the Hebrew Jehovah, meaning the eternally present one. Well, you know, Jesus' audience got the message, but they didn't like the message. Verse 59 of that chapter, John 8 says, At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. They got the message. He was claiming to be the Jehovah of the Old Testament. No doubt what disturbed Dickens in his day was his perception his perception that a God of love could not mete out such terrible judgments on sinners as is found in the Old Testament. And his way of handling this seeming dichotomy was to ignore or downplay the God of the Old Testament while exalting Jesus Christ of the New Testament. He did not see that God is one, not two. Now that brings us then to the New Testament case of Ananias and Sapphira. I think Dickens would have rallied around the compassion expressed towards the poor and the needy in Acts 4, verse 34 and 35, which reads, There were no needy persons among them, the church, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it, the money, was distributed to anyone as he had need. That's why there was no need, because the church rallied and took care of the need and eliminated the need. I think Dickens would have liked that. Oh, yeah, here, this is great. The church of the New Testament is taking care of the poor instead of oppressing them. The people that have money help. People have property, sell it. I love this. But just two verses later, the case of Ananias and Sapphira cannot be ignored. This is also in the New Testament church. 
Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, and, you know, with the idea that they're going to give this money to help the poor. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Now, before you get all torqued about this, what Peter is saying, and he says that in the next phrase, and we're going to look at it here in a minute. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Ananias, did anyone twist your arm and, and, and say, you know, we know you have a lot out here in Gaza somewhere. And if you would just sell that lot and bring that money, that'd be a great asset to what we're trying to do here with the poor. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Next sentence. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? No one twisted your arm to give the money to the church to help out. No one twisted your arm to sell the land. Now, understand what the sin is here. The sin with Ananias and Sapphira is not, it is not that they only gave a portion of the money from the proceeds to the church to help the poor. The sin was that they only gave a portion of the money from the proceeds and pretended that they had given it all. Therein is the sin. After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down dead and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Oh, yes, she said. Uh-huh. That's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Acts 5, the first 11 verses. Does that sound any different than the way God would judge sin in the Old Testament? As he did with Nadab and Abihu, as he did with Uzzah? Brethren, let us not think that there is a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament or between God the Father and God the Son or here the Holy Spirit is mentioned, God the Holy Spirit, whom they lied to. There's only one God, not two. And if men think otherwise, they are mistaken and maybe even duped into thinking that things are more, you know, they're a little more lenient in worship under Jesus than they were under the regulations of worship laid down in the Old Testament law. No, the same God demands the same honor and respect, whether manifest as the Son of God or as the Spirit of God. 
that we find in the New Testament text. Okay, what about the case of the Corinthian church? The celebration and remembrance of the Lord's table is part of Christian worship, is it not? Jesus put it this way, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. First Corinthians 11, verse 26 from the King James phraseology. And that phrase, as often, is not identical as a phrase, do this often. But it is as the NIV translates, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. And various churches have different ways that they observe this ordinance. But... There was something radically amiss at the Lord's table when the Corinthian church gathered to celebrate. He wor- Paul words it this way. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20 through 22. On those communion Sundays when we have a dinner here at the church, we do the Lord's table first, and then we dismiss the fellowship hall for our dinner. The Corinthians, however, were following the pattern laid down by Jesus the night of his crucifixion, Passover dinner first, then he initiated what we know as the Lord's table. Problem. Well, what was the problem? Well, at the dinner, which came first, people were sinning against the have-nots by hogging all their own food and not sharing with the poor who had little or nothing to eat. And, and they were drinking more wine than they should have so that the time came for the celebration of the Lord's table. By that time, they were inebriated. Oh, there's a real way to come in worship of God. Drunk at the Lord's table. So they came to the worship remembrance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The price paid for their sin. And they came to that table with obvious and blatant sin. Sin towards the poor and needy. Disrespect for God in a most unholy state of selfishness and drunkenness. So Paul could not commend them for this. No, he did the opposite. He rebuked them strongly, accusing them of despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. What's the church of God? It's the body of Christ. They were doing their own thing, right? (laughs) They didn't see anything wrong with their conduct. Somehow they distanced themselves from the other brethren of the church during this ordinance and they did not consider God's reaction. So Paul goes on to tell them God's reaction. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28 and following. A man, a person, ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. You guys are doing wrong. Don't you know that if you do wrong in this ordinance, in this process of worshiping God, you're going to come under the judgment of God. What judgment? He goes on. That is why 
Many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, then we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. And if anyone's hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. What is he saying? He is telling them, you didn't know it, but God has been watching. God has taken notice. More, God was doing something about this terrible, sinful conduct in worship. People were smitten with weakness or sickness, and a number of which never recovered from their sicknesses. No, they died. God was disciplining the church of Corinth as he had done with Israel of the Old Testament for their sinful worship. I say again, the God of the New Covenant is the same God of the Old Covenant, operating according to his own standard, which is, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. And echoed by Paul in Romans 2, verse 9 and following. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. What is he saying? Same God that wrote Deuteronomy, same God in Romans 2, verse 9 and following. God deals with impartiality, no favoritism. You sin, you're going to get disciplined by the Lord. You sin in worship, you're going to have trouble. No difference. That brings us then to our last point. How do we worship God under His requirements? What about new technology? Is it permissible under the regulative principle to have a TV monitor in the auditorium? A sound booth to amplify the speaker's voice? A tape recorder to archive messages for future use. An internet service to broadcast the morning worship to shut-ins, the disabled, and to people in distant locations. May we have church buildings, pulpits, hymnals, electronic Yamaha pianos, an organ or other musical instruments, air conditioning, a furnace in the winter, Flush toilets, electric lights, padded pews. None of these things, now think about this, none of these things are commanded in Scripture. So how do we account for them, or are we in violation of the regulative principle? Because none of these things are addressed in Scripture. I'm going to have a special message on music and worship in the future, but for now I just want you to consider with me these two things. The elements of worship versus the circumstances of worship. What's the elements of worship? We call these the essentials. Things directed by God in Scripture that are to be part of our worship of Him. 
such as, here we go, the reading of scriptures to direct our thoughts towards God, the preaching of and listening to the word of God, the Bible, singing with praise and gladness in our hearts in praise of God and his goodness, prayer with thankful hearts for what he's done for us and will do, receiving of the tithes and offerings to support God's work within the church. All these things are commanded in Scripture. The observance of the ordinances of Christ, baptism and the Lord's table, again, in the Scriptures. These are the elements, if you have a better word, that's fine, the elements of worship, the non-negotiable items governed by the regulative principle. All these things are commanded by God in the Scriptures. And so we err when we start messing with the essentials. Now over against the elements, the non-essentials, we have, I'm calling them the circumstances of worship. These are the functional aspects of worship which enable worship to occur. A place of meeting. Okay. The time of day. Who says we have to have worship service at 10.30? Some churches do it at 9.30. The use of pews, or should we use chairs? Musical instruments, yes or no? Okay, what kind of musical instruments? The use of TV monitors, hymnals, computers, sound booths, indoor plumbing. The list is practically endless. But here it is. All circumstances will vary from country to country, season to season, place to place. How silly, for example, to insist on a furnace for church buildings in Africa. No, but again, they might like air conditioning. But alternatively, neither would work without what? Electricity. Brother Blake and Donna and their work in Kenya. We're not pushing for air conditioning. They were pushing for the essentials of a well so that people wouldn't have to go to the river and dip muddy water. A well and a generator that run the well pump to get the water out of the ground. What's the principle? Here's the principle. All circumstances must facilitate or serve the elements, the essentials of worship. And must never, here it is, must never rise to the same status as the elements or the must-haves of worship. Let me ask this. People can sing praises to God without instruments, can't they? Yeah. Preachers can preach without a pulpit or without sound amplification. People can sit on benches or on the ground to listen or stand if they don't want to sit. Things that we think are essential... nor may things be introduced, dance, drama, which negates or compromises the elements of worship. 
So here's how you do this. You ask, is this whatever, whatever you're going to think about, is this whatever essential for worship governed by the regulative principle commanded by God? Or, secondly, is this whatever a circumstance of worship, an aid, a facilitator for corporate worship, but not essential, such as air conditioning and warm weather, electricity, indoor plumbing. Do you know that when this church was first built, there was no indoor plumbing? We have pictures of the outhouse out back. We have pictures of a rail that was right over here by this tree. The tree wasn't there. Where they came in with their horses and buggies and tied their horses to the rail. The people gathered for worship. In my home church in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, we never had air conditioning in the auditorium during my whole childhood and teen years. But we still gathered for worship. Know what we had? The deacons handed out cardboard fans stapled to wooden sticks. And everybody sat in the pew going like this while the preacher preached. And while the humidity was 90%. Was that okay? Yeah. That's the circumstances of worship. It's not the essentials. Didn't need air conditioning. Didn't need padded pews. By the way, the pews weren't padded at that time either. What should be our goal then? Our goal should be the enforcing of the elements of worship, the essentials and being flexible when it comes to the circumstances of worship. And every church has to decide on the circumstances, but shouldn't have to argue much about the essentials. The problem that we're seeing in our day is that the essentials are being set aside. God's word is not being preached. Prayer is not being prayed. Thanksgiving is not being offered. On and on and on it goes. In the weeks to come, we'll probe even deeper. Now, even in the doing of the essentials, coming here on a Sunday morning to worship, giving of our tithes and offerings, singing hymns to the Lord, even in doing all of that, none of these things in and of themselves save a person. Not one of them. Putting your money in the box, not going to cut it. Singing the hymns when you don't really want to sing, not going to cut it. Listening to sermons, Reading the Bible verses that we follow along as I'm preaching, not going to cut it. Their worship is received by those that know the Lord. And if you don't know the Lord, then we're going through, you're going through the motions, like so many people do. And if you read Isaiah chapter 1, you will see that God is not for people going through the motion. In fact, he tells them, bring your worthless offerings no more. I've had it up to here. I'm paraphrasing Isaiah 1. To worship God aright, your heart has to be right. And that's why the name of this series is Worship in the Heartland. Get your heart right with God. How do you get it right with God? By accepting Christ as your Savior and the one who is your step-in, your substitute for all the sin of your heart. Confessing and repenting of your sin and seeing in Jesus your hope and your righteousness.
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word this day. You're helping us to understand what it means to worship you. Poor Mr. Dickens and many other like him who think the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, that Jesus Christ somehow would not have endorsed what Jehovah of the Old Testament commanded of his people and what he did in terms of discipline and judgment. No, it was you there, Lord, commanding and judging, directing your people away from their sin and rebellion. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will do the same for us. Direct our hearts away from sin and rebellion. Help us in this series to learn more and more what it is like to worship our God. We do come to you this morning with thankful hearts. You are great God and Lord of lords as we read this morning. There is none like you. You are worthy of our worship, worthy of us bowing down our hearts and our knees before thee. And if we're sitting here this morning as rebels, defiant and rebellious to your word, never having even the thought of repenting of our sin and pleading Jesus' blood, I pray that you will forgive us that. And I pray that you will draw us by your spirit. Bring us to the place of confession and repentance and faith. Grant us these things, O Lord, because they're not found in the human heart. And we're thinking of camp this next week. A mixed bag, I'm sure. Campers coming that are Christians. Campers coming that are not Christians. Campers coming that are what we call churched. That is, they've been educated in the things of God, the doctrines of God, but maybe their heart still isn't bowed to thee. Though they know the doctrines, they're like Pharisees. And then you'll have, well, the, the, there will be campers there probably that have never even heard of Jesus Christ or of, uh, except in a curse word. I pray for camp this week and for Dean as he speaks and preaches, as for our counselors, for, ever, for Jared as he leads the group, for everything that is done that it might be to the praise and honor of your name, but mostly, Lord, that it would also bring new, new children into your family that your kingdom would be extended over them for, the, for when that happens, you are praised and glorified for the salvation. Even the angels of God, the scripture says, long to look into these things. Well, Lord, we long to look into it too and to see it and to rejoice with what you will do. We anticipate, we anticipate that this will be a great week of salvation and spiritual growth for those that are Christians, that the campers will be blessed by their fellowship with one another and by learning more of you. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen.